Hi, listeners. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of That's Rad, a podcast presented by the Littleton Food Co-op. Before you go any further, this is a content warning that this episode is going to talk about sensitive subjects related to bodies and food, including, but not limited to, diet culture, eating disorders, fad diets, weight loss, BMIs, and obesity. We've included timestamps in the description below for times when we talk more in depth about these subjects, but you may hear these words throughout. Always remember to take care of yourself and proceed as you choose. And you've alluded to this a little, but like, is there an escape? Like, could, like, so I know people feel like they've really escaped it. You know, they haven't done the fad diet. They haven't diagnosed themselves with an eating disorder or been diagnosed with an eating disorder. So they feel like they have been untouched completely and unimpacted. Like, is that possible? Is there such a thing as completely escaping diet culture? I mean, you know, like, if you want to live under a rock, like, absolutely. Um, (laughs) But for many of us, that's not an option. everyone, it's Anastasia, here for another episode of That's Rad, a podcast presented by the Littleton Food Co-op. Here on That's Rad, and at the co-op in general, we love to celebrate food. When it's grown locally, when it's made into a delicious meal, or even when it's just posed into a funny Instagram pic. From what we put out, it would be easy to think that food is a great, constant bright light in everyone's lives. And I wish I could say that was true, but it's just not. Food and our relationships to it have a darker side that we don't always explore if we don't have to. But that's the thing. We do have to. It's a privilege to think we have a choice not to. Because even if it's not impacting us on a personal level, things like food insecurity, present-day slave labor, and dangerous fad diets impact our communities and our food systems. So this isn't me saying that all of a sudden this podcast is going to be all heavy, depressing topics and a pessimistic outlook on food and life. Because that's just not who we are and that's just not who I am. But I do want to make sure we fold these topics into our rotation because ignoring them does absolutely nothing. We're going to start with some topics that sit very close to my heart. I've invited registered dietitian Kelsey McAuliffe on today to talk about diet culture and eating disorders. I feel like this topic is one that's very easy to try and shove in a corner and say, like, well, you know, I never run to the bathroom after every meal, so, like, this doesn't apply to me. But with the National Eating Disorder Association saying that 28.8 million Americans experience an eating disorder at some point in their lives, it's highly likely that you know someone who's been affected by disordered eating. I mean... 
if you're listening to this podcast, you can say you know someone who's been affected by disordered eating. Growing up as a young girl in the United States, it was pretty difficult to escape diet culture and eating disorders. Add on top of that being on, you know, a competitive dance team, being in a bigger body, and coming of age with the rise of social media, that chance turned slim to none. I feel very fortunate to say that I've never been diagnosed with an eating disorder, but I can't say that of all of my friends and the people I care about. And I can't say that some of the things that Kelsey and I discussed didn't hit a little too close to home. So I'm sure it will hit many of you the same, no matter where you place yourself on the disordered eating spectrum. We're going to talk about a number of subjects like diet culture, fad diets, eating disorders and disordered eating, and food morality, which is where the title of this episode comes from. So all of this is basically to say to listen to the following at your own discretion. Obviously, no one forces you to listen to any of these episodes. At least I hope not. That's like a new and painful type of torture, and I say that as the literal host of the show. But this is one to pay particular attention to your own mental state and past experiences to decide if you're in a place that's ready to listen to our discussion. If you're unsure, just try it out. I promise I don't sound any scarier than usual. No one's going to judge you for stopping partway through, skipping around, what be it. I'm going to try and timestamp certain subjects in the description box as best I can. And if this is all something you're not yet familiar with or completely neutral to, please don't let all of the warnings scare you off. We're going to say some things that might challenge some preconceived notions you have about food, about exercise, about weights and numbers, about our society and culture, and about yourself. All I ask of you is to listen with an open mind. There are dozens of reasons to listen to what we're talking about, but even if you can't get behind all of them, I want you to know that I sincerely believe that there's at least one person in your life who will really benefit from you listening to this episode and hearing with what we have to say. There's someone who wants, who needs you to educate yourself about diet culture and eating disorders. It might just be me who needs you. It might just be you. What's it that they say? The most difficult conversations are the most important ones to have? Here's Kelsey now. Hi, Kelsey. Thank you so much for coming on that thread today. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. All right. So to get us started, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice, the 21st Century RD? Yeah. Awesome. So my name is Kelsey. I am from Whitefield, New Hampshire. And a little bit about me, I do like to, first of all, recognize the privileges that I hold. I am a white, thin, able-bodied, cisgendered woman. 
and I am a registered dietitian. So that's what the RD at the end of 21st century stands for. And I am licensed in New Hampshire. So I have always loved science and really loved eating and cooking. And that's kind of what led me to nutrition. And very quickly, I figured out that the standard practice didn't sit quite well with me. I didn't know what it was at first, but it wasn't until I found intuitive eating and learning about a non-diet approach that I really fell in love with nutrition and learned this whole other way of practicing, which we're going to get into soon. But just a little bit more about me. I am obsessed with dogs, and I have two of my own, Ellie and Buster, and they're awesome. I live in a converted school bus with my boyfriend and our dogs. So I always love adventure and traveling. And I love strength training and yoga, reading, watching TV. So yeah, that's a little bit about me. And your bus has a, your house, I should say, has a special name, right? If I'm correct? Yes, it does. It's called the struggle bus, um, (laughs) which is very fitting. So we always joke we could write a book now about like how not to convert a school bus. We learned a lot of, along the road, and we've had some challenges, but, you know, we've overcome them, and it makes it that much more rewarding. But, yeah, bus life isn't always quite as glamorous as, like, the Instagram hashtag might make it out to be. So, yeah, I so encourage, if anyone's listening to this and happens to be thinking about converting a van or a bus, you can also definitely hit me up for some advice on that. <laughs> I'm open to it. You're a very multifaceted person. You have many, many <laughs> reasons people can come to you. Um, but but speaking of that, Kelsey and I are hoping to have just like a, a pretty honest conversation about some subjects that you might have heard in the intro or read about in the description. Um, and these things are things that I'm really interested in. Um, and obviously, you're interested in Kelsey, and I was telling her before that since this is such a, a sensitive subject, but also one I'm interested in, like, I was even having trouble thinking of what I wanted to say to kind of lead this discussion. Um, so, again, just buckle down and bear with us. I don't think we'll get too heavy, just because that's not the kind of person I am, but but still. Um, and just to, I guess, to start, it might be helpful to clear the air and sort of define things for um, people that might not know what we're talking about. So just just to start out, what's this idea that we call diet culture? Can you tell us a little bit about what that means, diet culture? Yeah, I would love to. I think that's a great place to start. So diet culture is a little bit tricky to define because in actuality, it's the culture that we live in, especially right now, more than ever. But essentially how I like to define it is a culture that really reveres smaller bodies and stigmatizes larger bodies. And it really equates this idea of thinness meaning health. And it adds moralizing food and like physical activity. And sometimes it's really obvious when we think of what we might call fad diets, right? Like grapefruit diet or 
cabbage soup diet, you know, things like that. But then it can also be really sneaky, uh, especially modern times right now. And in that way, it kind of shapeshifts and can turn into wellness culture, which also can have some toxicity to it. So that might be like whole eating or clean eating or whole foods, I should say. So it, it does take many forms, but at its root, it's going back to those things that I just mentioned, like equating thinness with health and really revering smaller bodies, things like that. So if I'm understanding correctly, it's kind of saying like, this is the one way we're supposed to look, like we're all supposed to look this thin way. We're all supposed to eat these morally good foods and do this morally good physical movement and exercise. And then if we don't do that, then like there's something you could say morally wrong with us or like physically wrong at least. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so definitely – Elevating certain foods, certain activity levels, and certain bodies over others. So, like, it's funny because it, it, like you said, like, this is our culture, but then when you break it down like that, I mean, maybe I'm a little biased, but, like, it sounds a little ridiculous. So, like, where did this come from? Like, who chose the one body and who chose like the what's good versus bad. Yeah. So I'm so glad that you asked that because I think this is something that is worth delving into, especially if you are someone who maybe just noticed diet culture. Maybe this is the first time you're hearing those words. I think looking at its roots can be really helpful to understand not only like where it came from, but how long this has been affecting us, what it's looked like throughout the years. And um, yeah, it's probably unsurprising. Like a lot of, you know, kind of negative things in the world, it's really rooted in capitalism, racism, sexism, you know, they strike again, unfortunately. (laughs) So you can see trends throughout history of especially women. So women are usually affected a little bit more by diet culture than men, but absolutely it seems to affect, you know, all humans at this point. But we can see a trend in history of women coming into their power, quickly followed by a trend for thinness. So, you know, if we look way, way back in history, a larger body was seen as um, a healthy and attractive body because larger bodies would be more likely to be able to reproduce and survive longer. And then we don't see this smaller body becoming um, popularized until, like, think about, like, the flapper girl, right? So around the time of women's rights and gaining the right to vote immediately is kind of followed by this trend that really we can see the roots was from, like, men in power And suddenly, we see women uh, striving for thinness. This makes me think, like, my favorite Naomi Wolf uh, quote is the most, she calls um, dieting, the most potent political sedative. And it's true. So if we are totally obsessed with the size and shape of our body and what we're eating, it's hard to care about other things. It's hard to be active in other ways in our life because 
it really, uh, dieting can be such a life thief. So we see it with the flapper girl. And then I think about like the seventies, right? Where like, uh, Twiggy, that supermodel was really big. And then you get to like the heroine chic of like Kate Moss in the nineties. So we see this trend and it shape shifts, it changes. So it's sometimes hard to follow. But, and yeah, I should kind of backtrack a little bit. It definitely has racist roots where we can see, um, trying to think of what their actual role would have been, but seeing um, writers, you know, from way, way back in like the 15th, 16th century saying that a European body is the ideal body. And there's a great book, if this interests you at all, by Sabrina Strings called Fearing the Black Body. And she does such a wonderful deep dive. It's a very, like, academic read, but into the racial roots of diet culture and of um, the just stigmatizing of larger bodies. So in sticking with this historical overview, when you first talked about diet culture, you said it's kind of an idea that's present now more than ever. So it's, it, that's an interesting thing to say to me just because myself and a lot of other people's people, we think of like the 21st century and right here, right now, like this is the most accepting we've ever been on all fronts, whether it be body, race, gender, all of that. So do you like stick true to that thought that it's, it's now more than ever? diet culture is present in our lives? Yeah, I do. And I think the reason being is because it, like I was explaining before, it shapeshifts. So I think diet culture might be a little bit of a limiting term, whereas I think diet culture now takes on this like health culture where, like I was saying, like eating clean, eating whole foods only, and it, it kind of turns into healthism, which at the root of it still has the same problematic thinking as diet culture. And as far as, you know, the medical fields, they still, you know, utilize things like BMI to quantify the health of people. And I think that now more than ever, you know, in physicians' offices, like a lot of my clients still face tons of weight stigma. And I've seen some uh, really interesting research surrounding how we're becoming a more accepting society in the ways that you had mentioned, like racism, sexism, things like that, and how far we are still for weight stigma. That still has not advanced quite as quickly as these other stigmas have, unfortunately. Mm. Two things you said there that I want to circle back to clarify for people. I believe you said healthism. Mm -hmm. Is that and and then so what is that and then also um, what is a BMI? Yeah. So um, let me start with BMI. So BMI stands for the Body Mass Index, and that was something that was created in the 1800s, I believe, and that was made by 
like mathematician for measuring populations. And it was something that was formulated around white European men, and it was never, ever meant to quantify, like, individuals. It was just a mathematical equation, essentially. So fast forward a little bit into the 20th century. So U.S. life insurance started using these, like, height and weight charts that were just super inaccurate. So um, there was a movement to figure out a better way of measuring people's height and weight to predict health outcomes. So then in the, let's see, 70s, Ansel Keys, he was someone that studied diet and health. So he studied different methods of calculating, quote-unquote, obesity and overweight rates. And he did say that BMI was the best. And it's kind of laughable because that meant that it could correctly diagnose someone as overweight about 50% of the time. And that was the best option that they found. And since then, we've stuck with that method. And actually, in the 90s, the National Institute of Health lowered the thresholds. So it used to be something like 28.5 would be into the overweight category. And they decided oh, what's this 0.5 nonsense? Let's make it nice round numbers so they lowered the (laughs) threshold. And so I remember, like, you can see articles in the 90s of, like, millions of Americans become fat overnight. And that's why, because the thresholds were lowered. And that's really what fueled the obesity epidemic was the fact that these numbers got moved and so figures were skewed and then suddenly this was made into an epidemic you know, proportions. So just kind of interesting. A lot of people think that it has, you know, scientific roots, and unfortunately it really doesn't. That's fascinating. I I never realized that it was just like we kind of changed, we changed the rules of the game. It's not that the players changed necessarily, like, but it's just like, oh, we – we like round numbers. I mean, everyone likes a round yeah. number, but when you're when you're sending millions of people into body issue spirals, like right, <laughs> it might be worth it to keep that decimal point. Yeah, and not only that. So um, the World Health Organization had a huge research, um, just looking at like from all different countries, all different people, all different walks of life. Um, it was huge, huge research study to figure out if they could use the words obesity and overweight and say that it is a disease. And after all of this research, they came back and said, no, there is not enough evidence to say that these terms equate to being a disease. And yet the World Health Organization said, okay, well, thank you for doing that research, but we're going to do it anyway. So that, again, huge misconception that a lot of people, you know, have no idea exists. I hate to say that I very much relate to that idea of I'm the kind of person who's like, let me ask all of my friends for their opinion on, you know, a less a less consequential matter, and then let me do the complete opposite. But that's a little different because I'm not you know, the World Health Organization. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah, so 
they it was very obvious what answer they wanted and that research was actually driven um so right you got to there's so many layers to this but when you peel it back look at who's funding that research and at the time it was the two biggest pharmaceutical companies that were um making weight loss drugs so um. even even though you know they had a vested interest in figuring out or you know proclaiming that being overweight or being obese is a disease they the the science didn't support it and that didn't even matter they still went ahead and did it anyway and now the other thing you mentioned was healthism is that like another part of the ism family if you were with <laughs> racism and sexism or is it different yeah so healthism is believing essentially that like health is really um the responsibility of the individual and really um it makes like the personal pursuit of health over everything else so it's one of those things like it almost sounds like a good thing initially right you're like oh you really value health that obviously has to be great <laughs> um but then thinking about how when that is your main goal not really taking into account like quality of life and that kind of gets into some of the eating disorder territory that I think we'll talk about a little bit later on but one of the new eating disorders that isn't yet like recognized officially but is um orthorexia and that is like an obsessive focus on healthy foods and we see that you know is still a psychological disorder that really can limit people's lives and happiness. So, yeah, healthism is one of those sneaky ways that I think diet culture lives today. So, it might not be directly a pursuit of weight loss, but just being as quote-unquote healthy as one can be. Does that make sense? No, that definitely makes sense. And yeah, I'm just really hung up too on like the individual responsibility part because I mean, it's it's funny because we're talking about diet culture being cultural, like it's mm -hmm. not really diet culture, like it's actually like our culture, but then we're saying it's individuals' responsibility to keep up with their quote-unquote health when like one of those is at a societal level, but then we're just supposed to all take care of it individually. And mm -hmm. that's not really lining up because there are all the cultural factors that we need to change, and we can't do that individually. It's almost like climate change in a way. Like yeah, where absolutely. if everyone stopped using straws, like we could save the earth. And it's like, oh, if everyone just ate, like, vegetables all day, obviously that's not, like, a, a good <laughs> Thing. But, you know, if everyone just ate their vegetables, it's like, okay, well, you aren't taking into account that people, there are food deserts and areas where people don't have access to grocery stores. Exactly. Yeah. So this makes me think about there's research out there showing that someone's, like, income level, that is a better predictor of their health than their BMI. So just realizing how complex health is and how that means something different for everyone and how no one is morally 
obligated to care about their health. And I know that sounds so weird coming from a dietitian, and I've had to do a lot of, like, unpacking of these topics myself, so I don't at all want to come across as thinking, like, I have this all figured out by any means, but when we live in, you know, diet culture or wellness culture, whatever you want to call it, um, it, it's good to kind of take a step back and think about how these affect you, even if maybe you don't feel like you're that affected by diet culture. Mm, mm, because we all, we think of the idea of someone having a bias as like a bad thing, but it's like we all have our own biases, but that's just because like we all have our own perspectives. We're all dealing with things. Um, I know you said like you described yourself at the beginning and we're all approaching the world from our own intersectionality of race, gender, ability, um, Mm -hmm. nationality, everything takes into account. Um, So naturally, I think those things affect how we live. Absolutely. I think about when you watch the news and maybe they like, you know, chop the heads off of like fat bodies in the picture or like blur their faces like that is diet culture that is fat phobia at play and of course that has an impact on how we see the world and how we see bodies right it's dehumanizing Mm -hmm. and it impacts how people who identify with those blurred and chopped off bodies it affects how they see themselves absolutely yes and some of the people that I see with the most fat phobia and have internalized a lot of this are people in larger bodies. And I should clarify as well. So when I use the word fat, I am using it as a descriptor. I think part of recognizing fat phobia and recognizing, you know, the stigma around larger bodies is that we, you know, we hear that word fat and think of it as a negative when it's really a descriptor. It's like being tall, being short. So, you know, a lot of that unpacking work and recognizing biases, um, some of that can come around just the terminology that we use and recognizing it and kind of sitting with it and seeing how that makes us feel. Mm -hmm. So I feel like we've jumped around it a little bit, but so now we we have a better understanding of what diet culture is, how it came to be. What actually, like, not, this is going to sound bad, but, you know, like, why should we care? Like, does this actually have an impact on people? And, like, what what kind of impact does it have? Yeah, I think that this has a ginormous impact, um, kind of what we've already been talking about, but how we see bodies, how we treat bodies, how we treat ourselves, it's all influenced. And it influences the medical community, right? Like the medical community is still trapped in diet culture, which in turn is providing less than adequate care for people in larger bodies especially i think about 
folks in larger bodies, like I've had clients who uh, might go to the doctor for something like strep throat, and they are put on a scale when they arrive and are told to lose weight. And that's just wildly inappropriate when they came there for antibiotics, right? Um, Mm -hmm. So uh, we see time and time again that people in smaller bodies tend to get better medical care than folks in larger bodies, and it affects everyone, right? Um, We also, in the reverse side, which does still happen, people in smaller bodies um, can absolutely be overlooked for diseases and things just because they live in a smaller body, so they're not checked for things. Ailments happen in people of all sizes and shapes. Yeah, yeah, that's a huge, huge impact. So we were talking about how, you know, it's it's ingrained in our culture, diet culture is our culture, and you've alluded to this a little, but, like, is there an escape? Like, could, like, so I know people feel like they've really escaped it. You know, they haven't done the fad diet. They haven't diagnosed themselves with an eating disorder or been diagnosed with an eating disorder. So they feel like they have been untouched completely and unimpacted. Like, is that possible? Is there such a thing as completely escaping diet culture? I mean, you know, like, if you want to live under a rock, like, absolutely. Um, (laughs) But for many of us, that's not an option. So essentially, no, I don't think there's a real escape to diet culture unless, you know, you are hiding out. But that doesn't mean that it has to have a big impact on your life, but recognizing that it is there, that it is the norm. But that's not to say that someone can't thrive within this culture. This kind of hits home for me. I am extremely lucky that I have actually never gone on a diet myself. And largely, I think that's due to my parents, like how they raised me. And they struggled themselves with their weight and dieting, and they never let that affect me at all. They never commented on my food or choices. And then the fact that I live in a, you know, normal, quote-unquote, normal-sized body also helps because I don't have this societal pressure, right, to uh, strive for um, weight loss, per se. So, yes, I do think that you can not let diet culture influence you too much, but it's still hard work. And I think, um, unfortunately, more people than not do fall into diet culture, which is, you know, represented by the number of people that do try weight loss diets in their lives or do have disordered eating behaviors. Mm. So moving into one of those topics, to me, it seems like a big part of diet culture is like the diets or or specifically the fad diets. So some of them we know it's like the proper name, company name, like Weight Watchers, Atkins, all of that. And then I remember you mentioned some of the beginning. There's just like the really weird food requirements, like, I don't know, sweet potato diet or like the cucumber and lemon water diet. So as we're grouping them in to diet culture, is that 
saying, like, they don't work? Yeah, so essentially you're asking, like, do diets work, right? And I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but no, they don't. Um, And that's why there's so many. I know, right? Um, There's so many out there. There's, again, there's shapeshifters, like Atkins is essentially like keto, right? Like they change, they evolve. Another one I would add to your list would be Noom. And they're sneaky as heck because they have caught on to like the non-diet approach. So their whole advertising scheme is like, we're not a diet, which is just so confusing and so sad that a lot of people will think, oh, this is actually different and then find out it's totally the same. Do you want me to get into, like, why diets don't work? I think that might be a little helpful just to, not that you're not a credible person, but just to give backing to the idea in case there's anyone who is still stuck on the hill. Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's a lot of reasons, right? And it's a lot of biology, but also psychology at play. I like to think of it as, you know what, we're going to talk about it like your house. So heating your house, especially in New Hampshire, I feel like people can relate to that. So if you think about like your furnace and how it burns wood and how that's kind of like our bodies burn energy and energy comes from food. And that's what we refer to as like our metabolism. So Imagine your house is set to 70 degrees and it's super comfy, but then you decide it's too warm, so you want to cool it down. This essentially is like if you were to open a window of your house, right, when it's like negative 10 outside, and of course you're going to get that like burst of cold air in the house. It is going to cool the house down, you know, pretty quickly. And that's a lot like doing like a calorie deficit, going on a diet. So initially that weight does come off. But what happens with that furnace, right, its temperature is still set at 70, so it's working harder. So what that is representative of in your body would be your metabolism is working harder to get as many calories out of the food as possible, to hold on to calories and um, energy where it can. So we see diets temporarily work. There's no denying that. Weight loss happens for a lot of people who try diets. And then the reality is, though, about I've seen varying numbers, but it's between like 91 and 97% of people will have regained the weight within two to five years from a diet. And then not only that, like I mentioned, their body starts working harder and that that system doesn't turn off. So essentially, um, about two-thirds of people after doing a weight loss diet will actually gain back more weight than the original weight they were at when they started that diet because their furnace is working harder and more efficient. And the reason for these systems at place, it's not because, like, your body hates you and is like, screw you, <laughs> you wanted weight loss but it's really trying to keep you alive. It has no idea that you are essentially putting it through a starvation mode on purpose. 
if you think, you know, historically our bodies have had to survive starvation, it had to learn how to hold on to calories and energy and store fat. And it's, you know, really a beautiful and wonderful thing that our bodies want to keep us alive and well, but it doesn't understand that when we are choosing to participate in a diet that we are, you know, with the goal of weight loss. It doesn't know that. It just knows that this feels a lot like starvation, and so it activates these systems to prevent further weight loss. That's a really good metaphor. I really like that. And from what I was hearing, it almost sounds like your body is – like, your body doesn't know that it's not supposed to like itself, like that you're not supposed to like yeah. it. So it's like, why are you – it's like, oh, like, you're you're losing these calories? Like, no, 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 like, we're supposed to have this amount. Like, you – that's why I'm going to work harder because you're – I don't want to say supposed to be this way, but, like, this is this is natural. This is what – you should be doing yeah is that so absolutely yeah so this is kind of that idea of like our body's set point and our body has a weight that it feels really comfortable and healthy at and you know that has nothing to do with something like bmi our body knows where it's supposed to naturally fall and that has a lot to do with things like genetics and you know hormones all sorts of things So when we kind of go against our own biology, we have the ability to raise that set point. And that's what we see with chronic dieting is that set point gets raised. And it, you know, unfortunately for a lot of people who want to have a smaller body, it's really, really difficult to get that set point lowered. And folks that do, um, you know, people that are able to lose weight and keep it off more than that five-year mark to show, like, successful dieting, some of them have very disordered behaviors in order to keep that weight off, but it's so few and far people are able to do that, really showing that diets don't work. And the companies like Weight Watchers, like um, Noom, all of them, they are absolutely aware of this research. They they know that diets don't work and they take advantage of that completely. They want you to be a lifelong consumer of their products. Um, it's pretty cynical. but Yeah, and I think it goes back to what we talked about in the beginning of the origins of diet culture. One of them is capitalism. So mm-hmm. it's You know, they say the same thing is true of, like, dating apps, where it's, like, it's not, no matter how much Hinge says it's designed to be deleted, like, it's not, because if you get off the app, if you get off the diet, like, they stop making money. Exactly. Yep. So, switching gears a little bit, um, this is another thing we've alluded to, we've talked about a little Um, But let's just get into it and throw out some sort of definition or starting point for eating disorders. So what is an eating disorder? 
you, we've also referred to it as um, disorders eating, like it's not the same thing. And some people might also refer to it as just short ED. Let's talk about that. Yeah. So I tend to think about eating disorders and disordered eating on a spectrum. I I find that when we look at eating disorders and only look at them defined as that, it can be really limiting. A lot of people will fall into a category of disordered eating um, without maybe being able to be diagnosed with a full-blown eating disorder. So that's kind of why I use those terms interchangeably. But essentially, an eating disorder is a psychological disorder surrounding eating habits, and they are diagnosed by something called the DSM-5, and that does have some limitations. So the main one on my mind being like for anorexia nervosa, so that would be restrictive eating um, and or or can have some binging and purging um, behaviors with it as well. In the DSM-5, part of what you need for a diagnosis is to meet underweight categories. So this is outdated um, and hopefully will change here very soon, but it's very clear that people of all different body sizes and shapes can absolutely have anorexia nervosa and not meet that qualifier. Um, And then some other common eating disorders would be like bulimia nervosa, and that would be like eating in total painfully full and then having some kind of purging behavior. Binge eating disorder is very, very common in the U.S., and that would be, again, eating until painfully painfully full, but then not having the purging behavior. Some other ones that I think are worth mentioning would be like there's ARFID, so A-R-F-I-D, and that stands for Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder. This is something that we see very commonly tied to autism, and it can be avoiding textures or tastes, but having, you know, such a limited array of foods that it can inhibit quality of life. There's also OSFED, so OSFED, and that's an other uh, specific feeding or eating disorder. So that's essentially if someone doesn't fall under the categories of like anorexia or bulimia, that would be uh, the definition for that. And then I already talked about orthorexia. And so this is the one that's not yet in the DSM-5, but is recognized as being, you know, very harmful for people's health. And that's that obsessive focus on healthy foods and, like, calories and things like that. Mm. So with this spectrum of, like, disordered eating to eating disorder, this really opens up the um, the qualifications of who could have one, because I think you're right, like restraining it to just eating disorder, you know, it's diagnosed. And I think it really, people limit themselves because like, they're like, well, I'm not, you know, throwing up after every meal. Like I mm-hmm. couldn't possibly have an eating disorder um, or disordered eating, but by just saying disordered eating, like how, what are like what might that end of the spectrum look like 
Yeah, that's a great question. So disordered eating patterns, I think about, so first thing that comes to mind for me is, so recognizing that these behaviors are usually like applauded when they occur in people in larger bodies. We think, oh, what willpower or you're doing so good on your diet and yet are more easy to identify as being problematic for people in smaller bodies. But things like having rules around food, like only eating in a certain window of hours in the day. And even if, you know, say you're hungry for a snack at 9 p.m., you wouldn't allow yourself to eat. Or avoiding certain food groups or you kind of get the idea. It's some things that, again, kind of fall under that, like, healthism uh, spectrum of behaviors that are intended to restrict how you eat and to usually ignore our own body's cues around um, food and even movement as well. So, you know, overcompensating with things like workouts and things like that fall on that spectrum as well. Mm. Or like really honing in on the connection between food and exercise. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, I have to, since I ate this, I have to work it off. Or like, oh, I want to eat this later, so I have to like earn it. Like earn absolutely a a big word. Mm -hmm. Yeah, feeling that need to like kind of repent for our eating behaviors. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think, at least in my experience, it's pretty common for people to think more about, like, the physical side effects, results, however you, effects, however you want to refer, refer to them from eating disorders. But as we've been saying, like, it's a psychological issue, diagnosis. Yeah. So how does that, how does one develop an ED? Yeah, so to backtrack a little bit, so I like to make sure people understand that the behaviors one will partake in that have an eating disorder or on that disordered eating spectrum, these are coping mechanisms. So this is assisting someone in feeling safe in the world and in their body. And it's really not about food, which confuses many. But at the root of it, right, the food's not the issue. It's something much more deep-rooted and psychological than that. We do see that eating disorders tend to occur more in people who are considered female at birth um, than male. And we see it in certain, um, like, personality styles and traits, folks who find themselves maybe identifying as like the perfectionist or as someone who really likes to be in control, essentially. So there definitely are some like personality traits that we find related, but the stereotypical picture that we paint, right, of a thin, white woman, young having eating disorders is so incredibly limiting. People in all size, ethnicities do 
struggle with eating disorders and the research is so limited in eating disorders because we tend to use that population that I just mentioned, like the thin white woman, um, young in the research. And so the more research that we do and the more that we're opening this up to look at other folks, the more we're realizing how many people struggle with eating disorders that we, um, you know, had overlooked in the past. So this is a much bigger issue than people realize. Mm. And I think a reason sometimes, at least to my understanding, that people don't want to admit either they have an eating disorder or that they have disordered eating is, like, it's a pretty strong word, like, disorder. Mm. Like, if you or someone you know, like, has disordered eating or an ED, like, is there something wrong with them? Like, are they not strong enough to hold out against diet culture? Like, I mean, assuming so, no, but like. Yeah, no. Um, it's just, it's recognizing that there's no one reason that someone would develop an eating disorder. I mean, living in diet culture some people have, you know, they feel more of an effect from that. But like I said, that these behaviors are usually coping mechanisms. So essentially, um, in recovery, we need to find more, you know, useful, helpful coping mechanisms in order to move on. It's definitely not as easy as like, oh, you're not eating enough. Here's more food and that will solve everything, right? It's a lot more uh, deep-rooted and complicated than that. And you just said now um, a phrase I wanted to talk about, too, which is this in-recovery part. And I hear people I know or people that I see on social media who have had eating disorders use the phrase that they're in recovery. Um, And this can be like, you know, they consider themselves having it like 10 years ago, but they Mm. still say that they're in recovery. So, like, is there a reason that specific phrase is used? Because I feel like it is, like, significant. And then, like, people still say that, like, is this something you're stuck with for life once you admit to having one or once you're diagnosed with having one? Mm. Like, are you in recovery forever? I think it is so individualized and so personal that there's no blanket statement to answer your question. But is recovery possible? Yes, I I believe so. And like we were just saying, the fact that it occurs on a spectrum, it's it's really not a black and white issue. Um, It's not as obvious of, yes, you have an eating disorder, no, you do not. But the reality is there's no escaping diet culture unless, Again, you got that rock you want to go live under. Um, But folks can absolutely break free from disordered eating behaviors. And they can, you know, a big part of that is, like, getting into that, like, accepting bodies and um, recognizing their thoughts around food and movement and body image. So it takes an incredible amount of work. And I think for some it is 
a lifelong battle or lifelong journey and saying that they are in recovery is recognizing that they still live in this culture. They still might have to fight the urge to get, go back to these coping mechanisms that were ultimately harming them. And then for others, I, I do think that they can correctly, I guess, um, claim that they are recovered and that is the right definition for them. So it's very individualized. That makes sense um, because, I mean, as we've been saying, like everyone has their own qualities that they're born with that impact their life and how they move and how they eat, but then also the nurture qualities that were like where we end up living, what food we have access to, what, how much we're in, uh, in tune with diet culture, all of that. So that makes sense that it's it's really individualized. And something I hear people say too is like recovery isn't linear, and I know that can be applied to so many things, um, but it's something I hear with EDs often is like, yeah, now that we have things like Noom and even you could say like TikTok, that it's, yeah. it gets harder at certain times in your life to to not fall back into those patterns, but you might, and you will just get back up again. Like Absolutely. Yeah, and I love that idea of recovery not being linear. <laughs> I have a photo that I show every client when we first start working together, and it's like a line graph, and essentially it, like, loops around a zillion times in the middle, goes up, goes down. And that's usually what the process of working through disordered eating or working with intuitive eating kind of looks like. So I like to be upfront with folks about that from the get-go. It can Sometimes it's it's hard to track, and you'll feel like you're moving backwards and forwards and right and left all at the same time, but it's still trending upwards. Yeah, and speaking of intuitive eating, I maybe a more, like, uplifting end, um, if we can go into, like, okay, so we know diet culture is bad, um, eating disorders are bad, and... Like, there's a lot wrong with the way we currently look at food. So, like, what would a, how would we look at food in a more idyllic sense? Or, like, how would we look at fueling our body and nurturing our body in a perfect world? Like, is there one way? Um, or is that, like, saying there is one way, is that part of the problem? Like, <laughs> yeah. So, again, I think it does look, really different for everyone and I truly believe that um, everyone is born with the ability to eat intuitively right think to babies they cry when they're hungry and they'll stop eating once they are full we're born with that we know those cues we understand them and it's not until we have some interference with those cues that things can start to go awry but ideally, um, the idea of intuitive eating is really trusting your your body and listening to your body's cues when it says that you are hungry, you are full, you are understanding when your body says, I'm stressed but still need some energy, understanding how certain foods make your body feel, and eating in a way that feels good to you and is unapologetic 
and that can take into account many different things, right? It's It never looks the same on two people. But, yeah, so it's really neat if you think of, like, watching, like, really little kids eat, right? They'll, like, pick at things, what they want, and they might leave food on their plate. They might eat way less than what we expect them to, but they're satisfied. And that's, like, really beautiful intuitive eating that we get to watch is little kids. So I think back to that, um, and it's not until we start, like, the clean plate club or this, that, and the other thing that we start to interfere with that process. But we're all born with that ability, and I think that's really a beautiful thing to think about because it can be really encouraging to know that we can get back to that point. It does take a lot of work uh, for many, but um, if we could do it then, we can learn to get back there as well. Yeah, I never really thought of of the whole process of, of babies eating and crying, but, but that's so true. Funny you mentioned the clean plate club because I'm thinking about, you know, like, oh, you have to finish your broccoli before you get to eat your potatoes or, like, some benign rule like that where it's mm-hmm. assigning better value to different foods. Um, exactly. Even if yeah. eating them goes against, like, what your body is feeling. Yeah. And these ideas can be really scary at first, but when broccoli and a Snickers bar have the same moral value, an intuitive eater, you know, this. a lot of people are nervous and they think, oh, my gosh, if, if I were to eat intuitively, if I just ate what I want, it would always be junk food. It would always be, quote, unquote, unhealthy food or whatever. The truth of it is, is we have such a variety of tastes and what satisfies us changes. And it's a beautiful thing because we're really good at being our own inner, like, nutritionist. We we can figure out, um, or without even, like, thinking about it, we crave variety and we get different nutrients. And you can have the same style craving for a Snickers bar as you do for you know, a vegetable. It's, it seems outlandish at first, especially to folks that have been dieting for a long time, because when we restrict foods, it really changes, like, how we crave certain foods, and maybe, um, you know, forcing ourselves to eat things will make them way less attractive at first um, when we start intuitive eating. I can't tell you how many folks I start working with who are, like, you're telling me I never have to eat a salad again? I'll be like, yes, that's okay. You can you can avoid it. And then, like, maybe six months in or so, they're like, okay, so this really weird thing's happening where I'm kind of craving salad. Can I eat salad? <laughs> so it's funny, but our bodies are really great at getting a great variety of foods. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny that we think, we don't want that, but then if you were to ask someone like, oh, how do you feel about only eating X food, whatever they, it may be, for the rest of your life, and they automatically don't want that, but when you reframe it as a diet, you know, it's like, yeah, sure, I'll totally eat grapefruit for the rest of my life. <laughs> so right, yeah. It's like throwing okay. the word around it makes it suddenly okay. 
But something I want to hone in on for a second is when you said, quote, unquote, unhealthy foods. Like, why the quotes? What does that that mean? (laughs) Yeah. And so I put quotes around, yeah, the words healthy, unhealthy, obese, overweight, because I want to recognize that there – there's no such thing as healthy versus unhealthy. Foods are foods, and I, I believe that all foods have different qualities to them. Like, think about, uh, like, a McDonald's cheeseburger. Like, that does provide protein in the meat and the cheese, and it has calcium, and it has bread that will provide carbohydrates, which your brain needs, right? So, when we when we think about foods as being black and white and being healthy or unhealthy, they all do have nutritional value. So if you choose to eat an apple but really were craving that hamburger, I don't think that that is a quote-unquote healthy choice, right? I would rather someone eat the hamburger and get their satisfaction factor from that and enjoy it and savor it and yeah, their body was craving those different nutrients for a reason, whereas an apple with fiber and fructose and things like that, um, you should totally eat that when you crave that, and that'll be its own satisfying experience. So I just uh, stray away from labeling foods as healthy and unhealthy, if that makes sense. Yeah, because, I mean – even we villainize calories, but like calories mm-hmm. are calories, no matter yeah, it's energy. where they come from. No food Absolutely. is bad food. Yes, if there's anything unless it doesn't that... taste good to you. Yeah, there you go. I would love for that to be kind of the takeaway from this. Maybe it'll even be the title. We'll see. There you go. <laughs> Um, so, so kind of wrapping up then on, again on this like um, looking forward train. So, even though diet culture is our culture, are there any strategies someone could use to kind of minimize that impact on their daily life so they don't get sucked into the shame vortex, if you will? Love that. Yes. <laughs> I, so I think came up with it. It's awesome. So first recognizing that diet culture exists and what I often work with my clients on is noticing diet culture and calling it out. And like sometimes, a lot of times, right, that'll just be in our mind. You don't necessarily have to actually call things out. But in order to break away from it, we have to see it. And it can get really frustrating. Um, it's one of those things, once you see it, you can't unsee it either. But noticing the terminology used around, like, food packaging or noticing how your aunt Kathy talks about different foods and recognizing, you know, how the news portrays bodies, all of those kinds of things. I think first step is just recognizing it calling it out and making sure like if feelings of like anger are coming up, making sure those are directed at where it belongs, which is that diet culture, right? It's not 
at yourself for falling into this or for not noticing it before, please give yourself that permission to maybe, you know, feel those feelings, grieve if you need to, um, those ideas, absolutely. But directing your frustrations to um, diet culture itself, I think, can be really helpful. But if you're ready to go beyond that, I absolutely uh, recommend to most folks the intuitive eating book or the workbook is awesome. Um, And it goes through each of the principles of intuitive eating, which is really just a framework. It's not like rules. It's not like a step-by-step or anything like that, but it's just a really nice way to dive in. And I like the workbook style of actually, you know, writing things out. It can be so easy, right, to read something and just kind of like nod along with it. But when you're actually putting in some practice and thinking about um, your own life, I think that can be really helpful. That's usually where I tell people to start. Yeah, and I mean, they say you'll you'll learn something better. You'll take it in better if you write it down versus just reading it. So that Mm -hmm. makes sense. Yeah, and then um, last kind of thing here, and this one's like really personal to me, is obviously if someone is suffering themselves from disordered eating or an eating disorder, they should reach out to um, either nutritionist, RD, their primary care, whatever they need to get help. But how can I or anyone support someone I know with an eating disorder, even though I'm not qualified in any way to do so on a on a big scale level. Yeah, but absolutely, like uh, the impact of friends and family on someone's recovery is ginormous. So recognizing that is a great place to start. And it's really like supporting anyone that you would support with any kind of psychological, you know, issues going on. Giving them space to talk is an amazing gift. And, you know, offering like that judgment-free space is just so beautiful. And I think that can be a great place, but this might sound um, silly or obvious, but like I really don't recommend talking about food or talking about bodies or movement, even if you're talking about yourself, just avoid doing it. Even if, you know, maybe you think you're being encouraging, maybe someone, is, you know, is restrictive, um, like saying things like um, you should finish your food or eat this or whatever, like just avoiding that altogether um, is definitely recommended. And when you said um, about reaching out for support from like dietitians and doctors and things um definitely a caveat on that would be to i highly suggest looking for a non-diet approach or an intuitive eating dietitian because there are still folks who practice eating disorder recovery uh, techniques in um like a weight-centric approach which breaks my heart but that is the reality of it so um yeah just making sure to have that 
question in place as well to make sure that you get someone that is a good fit. Mm, yes, definitely. Um, <laughs> and if anyone, you know, thinks you might be a good fit for them or a good resource to have or just wants to learn more about you and maybe the struggle bus and <laughs> all the services you offer, how can how can we keep in touch and how can we find out more about you and 21st Century RD? Yeah, so I have been on a little social media break, but I definitely plan to get back onto Instagram. So I am primarily there. Starting with this TikTok thing, I need to just dive in. I don't know why I've been resistant, but um, so my username is at the 21st Century RD, and my website is the same. It's 21stCenturyRD.com, and I do have a newsletter that I recommend if you'd like a little bit to hear more from me. Um, that's a great place to go, and then I do offer. So my initial consultations with folks is like a 15-minute discovery call to just make sure that we are a good fit for one another. And if we are not, I am always happy to refer out. Um, but those are totally free calls that you can sign up for on my website. And, yeah, email works as well. If you're not on social media, no worries. My email is kelsey and then at 21stCenturyRD.com. All right, everyone. I hope even if you don't choose, if you don't choose to or you don't think you need Kelsey's services, to really just check out what she has on Instagram and her website because they're super useful tips. She has recipes, super fun and colorful. Um, and it's kind of like today, like making these serious topics um, giving them the appropriate seriousness, but also, you know, it's part of life. We, life should be a little fun, a little col colorful. Um, and there's dog pics, right? <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Perfect. Okay. Well, Kelsey, this was a really great conversation for me. I learned so much, and I, I really would be struggling to say that I think no one else learned anything. <laughs> Um, so thank you so much for your time today and giving us all this information. Um, and I think it's it's going to make a world of difference to some people. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed our conversation. And, uh, yeah, hopefully we can connect again sometime soon. enjoyed this episode of That's Rad and got as much out of it as I did. I really appreciate having this platform to talk about these issues I care about, having people like Kelsey to talk about them with, and having listeners like you take an interest. Do you want to hear more about diet culture and eating disorders? Do you want to hear more about the dark side of food and food systems? Let me know. If you want to hear more from That's Rad, Make sure you're subscribed on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And leave us a rating and review. Until next time... 
please remember that your body and your mind deserve to be abundantly loved and abundantly nourished. If you or anyone you know is struggling, the National Eating Disorder Association hotline is 802-931-2237. I am so, so glad you are here on this earth and I hope you celebrate that accomplishment every day. In other words, remember to eat, sleep, and be rad. That's Rad is a production of the Littleton Food Co-op. Anastasia Marr directs and hosts. Jesse Smith and Annie Stewart produce. Becky Colpitz provides unrelenting positivity and moral support. The Littleton Food Co-op is Littleton, New Hampshire's community-owned grocery store. We put our money where your mouth wants to be. Local farms, of course. No membership is required to shop here. Come check us out sometime just off exit 41 at 43 Bethlehem Road in Littleton. Or if you're online, check us out at littletoncoop.com.